is John 3.16 that we will be reading. Again, give your special attention to the word of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me once more. Heavenly Father, we come this morning not because the cleanness of our hands or our hearts. No, we come because you have invited us. You have initiated and called us. And we come in response. We come to hear your word. We come to know the God who has said that he has loved us. And we ask, how have you loved us? Lord, would you teach us and show us in your word this morning? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, In 1999, the alternative rock band, Blessed Union of Souls, released what became their most famous song to date. It was a song titled, Hey Leonardo. Most of us who would remember it would remember it as the She Likes Me For Me song. It was the song about a guy who found the perfect woman. Perfect, you say. What what made her so perfect? She liked him for him, right? It wasn't because he was like Leonardo DiCaprio, who happened to be a heartthrob in 1999, right? Or funny like Jim Carrey, who happened to be funny in 1999, right? Perhaps no longer. But she likes him even though he's not rich or charming or tough, nope, or anything else for that matter. Instead, he says she sees his faults, his indecisions, his insecure conditions, and she likes him, perhaps loves him. Within all of us is this deep longing to be loved, is there not? For someone to see the fullness of our shortcomings, our faults, our ugly moments, and to love us, to love us. Love like that is almost too stupendous for words, right? And it's not a bad thing to long for this. In fact, I believe it actually reflects that we are made in the image of our God who is love, Right? Father, Son, Spirit, who exist in perfect love between these persons. And this God loves us more completely than we could ever dare imagine or hope for. However, in our culture today, there is this attempt to realize this longing, right, for this love. But it often comes in the form of saying, you must love me for me. Right? You must love me regardless of the moral content of my life. You must accept the dark things that I might love or desire and even maybe love me on account of them, celebrate me on account of them. See, many imagine a God 
who simply loves them and celebrates them in light of whatever they do, right? And, and whatever they want to live for. This must be God, right? Because God is love. These people have made an imaginary God that ultimately only reflects themselves. You should ask yourself, is that me? Have I made a God in my image, right? He's so great because he likes me for me and likes all the things I do. Perhaps for many of you this morning, you know that there are things that you do, say, think that are not good, kind, worthy of celebrating. But if you're honest, right, these things stay hidden in your lives. What comes front and center are the good things, the polished appearances, the choicest of our virtues and qualities. Right? You do plenty of things that look moral and right. And perhaps you even point to them and assure yourself, see, I am a good person. I am worthy of love of God and everyone else. Well, there are, those of you, uh, there are those of you here as well who know the depths of your sin. You have tried to hide your past, what has come and gone, what you have done, and you know that you have not good in your heart. And you know that there is one who was good, the Son of God given for me, given for you. But perhaps even you this morning, you can fall prey to looking to the things that you do Right? You, to the religious knowledge you have, the moral upstanding to be the thing that shows you as right before God, worthy of his love. Whichever you are today, you still share that deep longing to be loved wholly, completely, and forever. God has loved a people wholly, completely, and forever. How? How has God loved us, you ask? Well, our passage teaches us this, that God loved the world by giving his only son to save it. So you must believe in the son of God. It's written in your bulletin. If you want to follow along, that's your main idea today. God loved the world by giving his only son to save it. So you must believe in the son of God. Now, this believing in verses 16 to 18, which you'll see in your bulletin, requires you to acknowledge that it is only God's gracious initiation towards you that will free you from your condemnation. And then in verses 19 to 21, to believe in the Son means you must flee darkness. You must be rid of your self-deception. Now, as we go to the book of John, being that this is our first Sunday in John, we need maybe a bit of a background. So you might guess who wrote the book of John. John? Yes, good. Indeed, he was one of uh, Jesus' 12 disciples. He's likely writing this at least 50 to 60 years after Jesus lived, died, and rose again. So we're thinking 80s, 90s, in that first century. And his audience, on one level, is everyone. But even in more particular, he likely has a target on the Jews. The Jews who are mourning... And wondering something, because just recently in 70 AD, their temple, the place where God was prayed to, worshipped, and his presence was, had been destroyed. And they wondered, where is our God? When will he come and save us? Where is that Savior, that Messiah? And so John is writing to show them, and everyone for that matter, that Jesus is the Christ, is the Savior. He was the one they were waiting for. And not only for the Jews, but for all people. That's, that's the purpose when you think about the book of John. That's what it's about. 
Now, the context for our specific passage in John 3 reaches back, well, certainly to the beginning, but at least to John 2. You see, in John 2, Jesus strolled into that temple, that same one that would be destroyed some 40 years later by the Romans, and what he found was an active marketplace. They were trading animals, they were switching money and all these things, because you see the religious leaders and teachers had allowed it to become a house of trade. And it's that famous story where we're like, hey, Jesus can be angry too, right? And he, he goes and he flips tables and he chases out the money lenders and the animals and he says, God's house is not a house of trade. It's a house of prayer. And after that, this is where we come to John 3, where a religious teacher named Nicodemus, he shows up and he comes to Jesus in the dark at night. And he's coming to find out two things. He's coming to get to the bottom. Who is this miracle-working Jesus? Who is this temple-clearing Jesus? Perhaps it's even a confrontation. Most people don't name this. But perhaps Nicodemus, maybe skittishly, is coming to confront Jesus. Who are you? Well, this conversation that Jesus has in John 3, Jesus treats Nicodemus as the representative of all of Israel's teachers. He always uses actually a plural you for Nicodemus. So he means not only Nicodemus, but also the other Jewish teachers. And Jesus says something very straightforward. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't know who I am. And you don't know how to get eternal life. And this is where the conversation is leaving off today, uh, or rather where we're picking up today. Jesus ends his time with Nicodemus uh, by pointing to a time where Israel looked and believed upon what God told them to. And in doing so, they lived. They lived. And so must everyone who wants to receive eternal life. There's your background on John. As we look, we're going to just break up these uh, John 16, or 316 through 21 into two sections. So this, this first section, if you want to focus in on verses 16 to 18, that's where we are. We learn that God loved the world by giving his only son to save it, which means that you must believe in that same son to, to receive eternal life. And what this looks like in these passages, what this means to believe, it means that you must acknowledge that it's only God's gracious initiation to end your condemnation. He does it all. So we must understand about this. So in verse 16, look with me there again. It says what? The most famous verse. I was with a neighbor last night, and I said, I'm preaching on the most famous verse in the world. And they said, oh, for God so loved the world, right? I said, you nailed it. Way to go. The thing about this verse, though, is that we often read it and we mistakenly understand it. This word here for so, this itty-bitty word, is not talking about the the amount or the degree of God's love. Instead, it's probably better translated, the CSB Bible translates it this way, as in this way. So rather, this love is saying how God loved, not how much God loved, okay? Okay? How God loves. So, for God loved the world in this way. Now, this statement should actually be shocking. Uh, It would be to the readers. Because remember, these readers, the Jewish teachers, the Jews, they said, for God so loved us, right? He, He likes us for us, they would think. 
And in the Old Testament, it was because God chose to make a, a covenant, a binding promise with one man to lavish his love on him. His name was Abraham. And that covenant, that promise, continued on to his descendants, who became the nation of Israel. A promise to this people that God would be their God and he would be, they would be his people. And oftentimes people under, misunderstand this about the Old Testament. It's not that God didn't love humanity still. He made a covenant with Israel, but the aim of that covenant was that the watching world was to see this loving relationship and was to say, I want that. The love from God and the faithfulness of God and the same response from the people to God, and they were meant to come in to Israel. They were meant to come in and worship God. And you see stories of that throughout the Old Testament. Now, so to say here, God loved the world, it means that God loved then not just one ethnic tribe, but all of humanity. And maybe we'd agree with this, right? Every day, what happens? We see sunshine, we see rain. You just took a breath, didn't you? So did everyone else on the planet who's living. Right? God gives plants to grow. God is kind and loves the world at one level in all that he gives. But verse 16 goes further still. In what way does the Father show his love? By giving his only son, it says. We should clarify whose love is being shown here. In other places, it says Jesus loves us, and that's why he came to do what he did. Or he loved his father, and that's why he came to do what he did. But notice here, while the word and name of God generally refers to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit in full, oftentimes in the New Testament, the word God actually refers just to the Father. And just like somewhat the word Lord often is tied to Jesus. There's a great example of this in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It's where there's a blessing where Paul says the grace of the Lord Jesus, right? The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's a, what we call a Trinitarian benediction, a blessing as he ends the book of Corinthians. And because it names the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, it only leaves us to understand God as the Father. This is often how the New Testament speaks of the Father simply calling him God. And so whose love is it that we see? Who loves the world? The Father. The Father so loved the world. The Father loved the world in this way by sending his Son. Now there's this word that, uh, there's a lot of debate on it. Um, it's the word about the Son. What kind of Son is he? The only, the perhaps only begotten, or the one and only, right? depending on your translation. But what's behind this word, this can be your Greek word you can, you can show off to somebody, is the word monogenes, monogenes. This word monogenes, uh, it doesn't mean that whoever is monogenes is a birthed person necessarily, or a created person like Jesus. He's not, he's not birthed by God. He's not created by God. No, monogenes typically is speaking to the specialness, to the kind and class of person. So when it's naming Jesus as the monogenes, the, the only one to come, it's saying that Jesus is of a class of his own. If we reread it, it would say, the Father loved the world in this way by giving his one-of-a-kind son. One-of-a-kind. Sometimes only children were called this. This is why I got associated with kids, because they're one-of-a-kind, right? And so, uh, so this is what Jesus is, right? He is the one-of-a-kind son. And we might ask, why is this a gift? How is this a gift? Right? Well, it's because earlier in John 1, another John, John the Baptist, 
he saw Jesus and he declared this truth. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, the Son of God, Jesus himself, was a gift because he came as the sacrifice to bear the burden of our sin, to put that punishment on himself, as many lambs, non-God lambs, had done in Israel's past. And so verse 16 is saying, any who believe in the Son, in his work of his sacrificial death and resurrection to come, in the book of John, they will receive eternal life and forego what? Perishing, eternal perishing. And just to clarify even, what do we mean when we say eternal life? Well, Jesus later in John 17 says this. He says that eternal life is not just living forever, but it's knowing God, knowing God and the one who he sent, Jesus Christ. In other words, it's that promise to Israel. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the eternal life that's offered if you believe on the Son, the one sent. So verse 17, if you look at the next one, it says that Jesus came not to condemn the world, but what? That it might be saved through him. Now, for, for those of you familiar with Jesus' words, uh, contrary to common belief, Jesus actually talks about hell and judging the world more than anyone else in the entire Bible, Right? So what does verse 17 mean then that he hasn't come to condemn? Well, this fits together in two ways, okay? Two truths here fitting together. One is that Jesus was sent the first time in order to save the world that's condemned. And then uh, the second is that, as verse 18 makes clear, that he is coming to a world, to a humanity that is already condemned. Already condemned in their sin. It's interesting, this might be one of the most difficult things for our society to hold on to or to believe. What do you mean already condemned, right? God loves me for me, right? How can I be condemned? God likes what I do. But you see, verse 18 draws on this reality of what Paul says in Romans 5.12. Paul says this. He says, sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, our first father, Adam, it was his sin that stained not only himself, but all of us as well. And his death also became ours. But it's not all on him, right? We all sinned. We all die. And you see, our sin, it pervades everything. As we live in the world as if everyone and everything does not belong to God. We live live as if our lives and all the things that we have are ours. We say, God, leave us be and love us. Love us for whatever we love and however we live. For this reason, we exist already condemned in our sin. And so what verse 16 through 18, to sum it up, are revealing is that without God's gracious initiation to come to us, to give a son, we are left in our condemnation of our sin. It's only by God's loving initiation that you might be saved. I wonder uh, for you, have, have you ever set an alarm clock at an early hour of the morning to ensure that you wouldn't be late? You've done that before, right, for that, that work meeting as people look at each other this morning. I'm like, yeah, it was today. Um, perhaps that work meeting, perhaps that exam you were supposed to be at or an important event, right? The, the alarm goes off, one snooze, 
two snooze, three snooze, four, perhaps. And you awaken to read the clock, and you find out what? You are already late. The dread, right? The dread hits. You have no please. Perhaps you even cry out, no, right, as you take off for the door. You have no pleas or no excuses. You're aware in that moment that your only recourse is to ask for mercy, to ask for help. Even if you try to recite those excuses on your drive over to wherever you're going. I want you to uh, apply that experience of the dread of being late already to the reality of being already condemned in sin. Read the clock. In sin we are already condemned. No! We have no plea, no excuse to make before a God. And why is it so important? Right? For many, they say, no, God doesn't, you know, he forgives us straight out. We don't need to worry about him uh, punishing our sin. If you, we fail to understand that we are already condemned, we will then fail to grasp the immense love that God has for the world. The immense love that God shows to us in graciously initiating sending his son long before you ever asked. The Apostle Paul has this uh, wonderfully schizophrenic dialogue in in Romans 7. And it's this dialogue where he acknowledges uh, his deserved condemnation. He names the problem of sin and he says it's not out there. No, it's in here. And he grasps this condemnation and he says this. It should be a plea that we remember and even repeat to ourselves in the end of Romans 7. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Who will save me from this body of death? And his next words acknowledge that only God can or that only God has. He says this, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, we can never grasp the utter, the utter heights or the utter depths of God's love for you until we see that we are already condemned. And because when we see we're already condemned, we see the Son given as a gift for you who believe in Him. So believing in the Son of God means acknowledging today, I am condemned in my sin, but... But only through believing in the Son of God sent for me will eternal life be mine. It'll be mine. As we look to the following verses in 19 through 21, you can look there with me. Again, we see that truth. God loved the world by giving his only Son to save it. We must believe in the Son of God. And how do we show that faith? We flee darkness. We flee self-deception. We'll come back to that. So you noticed in verses 16 to 18 this polarity, right, of, of life and death. And we see it in the next two verses in light and darkness. John is always talking about life, death, light, darkness. In verse 19, look with me, it says, This is the judgment or verdict. The light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness instead because their works were evil. Notice it says, the light. Not a light, the light. This is referring back to John 1. When Jesus said this in John 1, 9, he said the true light was coming into the world, the same world that he had created. But his people 
refused him, rejected him. The religious leaders rejected Jesus, right? He's talking about the Jews, the teachers. Nicodemus, remember, the one hearing this conversation. But it also says a few verses later in John 1.12 that it says, all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Which should tell us, again, to, uh, at the very least, contrary to common belief, that though God loves all of humanity at one level, we are not all of his children. The world is not full of God's children, no. Only those who believe upon and receive the Son are made a child of God. Only those who flee the darkness and come to the light become children. So we might ask, what keeps people from coming to the light, right? The light being Christ himself. Well, verse 20 doesn't pull any punches. It says, it's because you hate the light, right? You won't come because your works, or in other words, the, the quality and content of your lives and your hearts, your works would be exposed if you came to the sun, to the light. Now, at first read through, right, when we read this, we might imagine someone in the dark of night scheming about, right, to do something bad, something they already know is bad and they actually like doing, right? But for most of people like that, who know what they are doing is evil and they love to do it, they have no fear of being exposed, right? They'll do it right out in public. But instead, I want you to remember, who is Jesus talking to? Who is John writing to? He is talking to Jewish religious teachers. He is actually talking to the people who look good, who look outwardly moral. He's talking to those who are waiting for a savior. And so with that context, verse 20 is not aimed at the dangerous-looking person doing dirty deeds in the dark, no. No, but it's more like the person who looks good and moral, perhaps even has ample religious knowledge. That's who this is coming after. And that means that loving the darkness in these verses isn't just obvious sinful activity, no, but it's all those virtuous and moral acts that one does to show that they're virtuous, to show that they're moral, so they might look that way and be accepted as such. This verse is pointing to the deception of others by those Jewish religious leaders, right, by the Jews themselves, to anyone who says, no, I'm a good person, look what I do. That's what proves it. No, this, Jesus is saying, even if you look good, but you don't come to the light, it's because you fear your deeds will be exposed. It's not actually as good as you think they are. It's not matching the heart that God actually requires. This verse is also naming a self-deception in people, right? Perhaps equally as often as someone tries to look moral, righteous, and good, they begin to actually believe, I am moral, righteous, and good. At least as a Wisconsinite, I'm better than the next guy, right? That's our religion. But the Old Testament reading today calls this thinking wrong. Verses 6 and 7, if you can still see it, or just 6 for that matter, it says this, We have all become like one who is unclean. Here it is. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted, a filthy, a dirty garment in God's eyes. Your righteous deeds cannot prove you righteous. There is a tendency with this self-deception that says, see how moral I am. I don't even need Jesus, right? You maybe have met people so nice that you're like, that person might never come to Jesus because they know that they are so nice. 
They fail to see that they too need Jesus. But verse 21, to to look at the last verse, it tells us who does come to the light. And it says it maybe in a, a strange way for us. It says those who are doing what is true in their works, words, and thoughts do not fear bringing them to the light. Right? Comparing them to what Jesus says. They don't have fear of that. Why? Because in doing what is true, in wanting to do these things, they actually want to come into the light. They want to be freed from any temptation to deceive others about their righteousness, about the content of their lives. They understand that verse, uh, that famous one, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You might be able to recite for me, right? It, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. No. So that no one can boast. And it goes on saying, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, to do them, right? But they're works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So this answers that last part of this verse. It says, it's, it's in God that these works are done. Or in other words, it's by God's will. The good works that are done You bring them to the light because they're ones that God prepared for you. In other words, they're for the glory of God, not you. Your good work should say something more about God and less about you. You cannot prove that you are righteous by them. So what becomes clear in verses 19 through 21 is that coming to, loving the light, believing in the Son of God means you, me, we must flee darkness. We must forfeit our self-deception. You have to leave behind those deeds that you look to, whether they're dark and dirty or if they're moral and good that you're looking to to show yourself righteous. They can't reverse the verdict of already condemned. I, uh, I had a dear friend uh, who lived in China for a number of years. And uh, he said that when his uh, Chinese friends would come over to his house, uh, they would, you know, they'd have doors closed in the house, but, but their Chinese friends would just barge right in, right? There was no door left unopened. They would go and just freely wander the house. No closed doors or bedrooms could keep them from barging in to see the untidied rooms, right? The uh, dirty laundry on the floor, perhaps an unclean bathroom, right? And this isn't everywhere in China. This is just my friends, Chinese friends. But can you imagine this, right? When you prepare to host, you might shut a door. Why? Because this room is off limits, I don't want you to see what's in this room. Don't look in there. Don't check under there, please. I have spent hours cleaning this one square for you to look at, right? This is the one I want you to see. I've cleaned the space I want you to see. Isn't that how you live your life? Here, shine the light on this part of my life. See how unugly this this area is? See how organized, thoughtful, and smart I am. See how put together my family is. Did you see our last family portraits? I have them. Aren't you tired of keeping up the performances, the appearances, of only posting on social media the good photos, right? The good stories, the sweet moments, the triumphs about being good fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, friends and students, but keeping quiet all the dark, ugly and difficult things of your life the addiction type things, the if anyone knew this about me type things. We stuff our darkness of our lust and our rage and our bitterness, our envy, our overly self-conscious thoughts into that off-limits room and we shut the door fast 
so they might not fall out. Yes, we refuse to come to the light because we love our sin. We don't want anyone to see that. But what is even more dangerous is that sinful heart that underlies our supposed righteous living. We put out this version of ourselves so consistently that we begin to believe it. Yeah, I am good. Look how clean this area of my life is. We can deceive even ourselves. You see, all the darkness you hide within, all the darkness, how does God respond to it? This is the big question. God loved the world in this way. God loved you in this way. He gave his son. He gave his only son to save you. The light of the world made flesh and plunged into our darkness You see, there is no room in your life or in your heart or in your mind that's off limits. God sees it. He sees it entirely in full. And guess what? He loves you. Not because of the sin. No, he loves you in spite of it. He sends his son to come and to die on account of it. Have you felt the sweet relief of being exposed in your life? Of having your life laid bare and yet loved. Like the singer in the song, God loves me for me, not because of my sin, but he loves me because he loves me. And he gave his son for me. Because when you are exposed and still, and still loved, you are ready to flee the darkness. You're ready to stop uh, touching up your life. You're ready to forfeit only sharing the good things and to relinquish the self-deception. Because in return, you get what? God. Eternal life, knowing God, that's what you get. Today, if you hear this and you have yet to believe upon the Son of God in his life, death, and resurrection, flee the darkness today. Leave the self-deception. There is sweet, oh so sweet relief in receiving God's gracious initiation to wipe away the condemnation. And there's life eternal waiting. Believe in the Son of God. For you here who claim to believe in the Son already, examine your hearts. How often do you point to your religious knowledge, to your words and works as what shows you as righteous before God? Yes, the content and works of your life, they prove the legitimacy of your faith, Uh uh-huh. But, indeed, it is only believing in the Son given for you. Get this, if how God loved the world was by giving his Son, then you dare not. You dare not put anything else out there, believing that will justify you. No, you look and rest in the Son, what he accomplished only. The late and uh, likely most well-known PCA pastor here in closing, uh, Tim Keller, he's in glory now. He has this famous quote that you likely have heard about the gospel, and it fits so well here today. He says this, he says, The gospel shows us this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope for. How has God loved the world? He gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will receive eternal life. God does not love our sin or celebrate it. No, instead the son of God dies on account of it. So why? so you can have eternal life. Believe in the Son by the grace and the Spirit of God. Believe in the Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We come this morning again not because our hands, our hearts are clean, not because our deeds or the stories that we show, the cleanness that we seek to present makes us worthy of coming. No, we come because you have loved us by sending your Son. May none of us rest in anything but the Son. May none of us look to ourselves to show ourselves righteous before God. God, give us the gift of faith, we pray today. It's in your name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen.